Hello, and welcome. You're listening to the Common Thread Podcast out of the Howard Thurman Center at Boston University. Our mission is to seek out topics of importance and discuss the implications that we think are of interest to our community. Welcome to the inaugural episode of the Common Thread Podcast here at the Howard Thurman Center. Uh, We're really excited today because we have a topic that we think is of importance. Martin Luther King Jr. was one of the most important alums from this university, but sometimes when we celebrate his legacy, it isn't discussed in its entirety, in its uh, complexity. A lot of times people want to whitewash the history and see him as somewhat of a static dreamer, uh, someone who was sort of a, a, a just an optimist. And we would like to shed light on the part of his life where he was more uh, revolutionary, more radical. Matthias? Um, so we're, we're going to start off actually by kind of exploring what dimension of MLK's legacy is underappreciated and not really known um, by, main, by, by, mainstream, by the mainstream audience here in the United States. To kind of illustrate that, we have a, we have a great quote from uh, historian Vincent Hart, one of historians Vincent Harding's students who in class said the following. All through these years of schooling and TV, I've just been shut off from the last part of Dr. King's life. It's like all I can remember is that great I have a dream speech. And then it's as if he was shot right after that. You know, like the day after. And then the next thing I know, there's going to be a national holiday. In this period between 1963 and 65, Martin Luther King underwent uh, a lot of changes in the way he expressed some of the philosophies that he gathered through his educational experience here at Boston University, as well as uh, Crozer Seminary and Morehouse College. Uh, his sister, Christine King Ferris, actually writes in her memoir the following. He underwent profound spiritual, political, and intellectual growth. Some commentators have described it as his having taken on a more militant tone, but that's far too simplistic an explanation. What really occurred is that he expanded his focus and developed a broader worldview, which would, in turn, dominate the remainder of his days. She went on to say, It is also my belief that many contemporary scholars and historians fail to grasp the depth of ML's revolutionary philosophical and analytical shift in the years between 1965 and 1968. Christine King Ferris's quote sheds light on the portion of Martin Luther King Jr.'s life where he did undergo profound philosophical shifts as a result of the education he received here at Boston University, as well as Crozer Seminary and Morehouse College. We're really happy to have Reverend Julian Cook with us today in order to shed light on that, as well as Ryan Hendrickson, who is the Assistant Director for Manuscripts at the Howard Gottlieb Archival Research Center here on campus. With that said, we'd like to go ahead and get started on August 28, 1963, with his I Have a Dream speech. In the I Have a Dream speech, beyond the the notion that children should be, that children and people should be judged based on the content of their character, he also speaks about the unspeakable horrors of police brutality inflicted on black people. And he said he refused to be satisfied as long as the Negro's basic mobility is from a smaller ghetto to a larger one, right? And uh, Vincent Harding makes the very good, qu- uh, very very good point in his work that it's much easier to deal with the dream of an America where black and white children would hold hands in unity than it is to deal with the reality of police brutality, and systemic poverty on uh, on an institutional level. As we discuss this portion of his life from 1963 to 1968, we identify 1965 as a key turning point for him where he starts coming forth with some of these more radical proposals and radical philosophical ideas. But the the U.S. government started identifying him as somewhat of a threat immediately after this speech. Uh, as a matter of fact, he gives the speech on August 28th of 1963, October 10th, only a short time later. Uh, he begins to be wiretapped uh, by the FBI. Ryan Hendrickson in the Gottlieb Center has something to say about J. Edgar Hoover and how the FBI treated MLK. Well, there was a fundamental distrust of the civil rights movement from the beginning, right? So Hoover believes that, again, he comes into this from the 50s point of view as that, you know, any kind of social unrest has to be from communist sources, right? That he, in his mind, it's all one piece. And, like, people, uh, you know... I don't even know how to... It's hard to kind of get back yeah. into that mindset of, like, the Red Scare of that era. Um, but but this whole social, this racial justice thing was a red herring, right? It really was all just about disrupting the social order. Right. Uh, and that, therefore, led to, logically, communist 
sources. Now, you, of course, Hoover had no love for anybody who wasn't white anyway, you yeah. know, or women. I mean, he yeah. was a very nasty piece of work. So, Absolutely. Uh, he had no qualms morally about undermining the civil rights movement. It wasn't like he said, well, if they really were honest, I would support them. Right. No, it was like, no, I don't, I don't, like, why would we want these guys to win? That makes no sense. Right. So. At the end of 1963, post uh, I Have a Dream speech at the Lincoln Memorial is... Uh, three weeks afterwards, essentially, on 15th of September, 1963, in Birmingham, Alabama, the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing occurred, where four black girls were killed um, while they were at Sunday school, essentially. And that, that had a tremendous impact on uh, MLK's outlook on human nature, on where the movement was going, and on the nature of the conflict that he was trying to address um, and, and the, the rampant racism he was trying to, to counteract in, in the South. Absolutely. I mean, I, that event had a, a profound effect on him. The end of the summer of 1964, there was the, the Democratic National Convention. It, for the Democratic National Convention to designate the nominee for, for the Democratic Party for the 1964 elections. Important to LBJ's potential election at that particular point in time is the support of Mississippi and the Dixiecrats. So LBJ used a lot of political means, namely the FBI special squad that was designed specifically for the Democratic National Convention to deal, to address the racial question with regards to the Mississippi delegation. He leans very heavily on all members who, who could potentially vote in favor or against the inclusion of a, a pluralist delegation. A multiracial one, and at the end of the day, he convinces King to encourage the the, the, the group of NC, uh, uh, SNCC political activists to compromise, which is something that King regretted thereafter and was always reproached to him by members of the SNCC. So it's a compromise that, in the light in the light of a lot of supporters, was basically the product of MLK's relationship with the White House and basically the white liberal establishment leaning on him. He conceded to them. Right. Next up in the timeline for, for MLK is the is December sixty four, which is when he travels to Oslo, Norway for the for and, and receives the Nobel Peace Prize. This trip to Norway actually is really important because when we're talking about his philosophical shift, this caused MLK to question the foundations of capitalism in the United States once more. He actually says about Norway and about Scandinavian countries in general, quote and I'm always amazed when I go there. They don't have any poverty. No unemployment. Nobody needing health services that can't get them. They don't have any slums. The question comes to us, why? It is because Scandinavia has grappled with the problem for more equitable distribution of wealth. Now this means that we are treading again in very difficult waters, because it really means that we are saying something is wrong with the economic system of our nation. That is what it means, really. It means that something is wrong with capitalism. So, you know, it's it's... Before anybody uh, anybody gets up in arms regarding the potential politics of MLK, it's really important to note, um, according to to a historian who spent his career covering the legacy and the history of MLK and his role in the movement, he says at the same time it is important to note that Martin was not inclined to jump to the conclusion that any socialism that we have seen anywhere offered an alternate model for the reconstruction of this, the most technologically advanced society in the world. For him, the answers, the models, the hopes, the new constructions were still in the hearts and minds of all those men and women who were being drawn away from the old and working their lives toward a new way. So what, what, that, what's that, what, what that's saying essentially is that MLK is not subscribing to any particular economic model. He doesn't consider himself to be a Marxist in the strict sense, a democratic socialist in the strict sense, a capitalist in the strict sense. I think you have a, qu a really good quote um, that kind of illustrates the way that he approaches the, pro the, the issue of economics. Exactly, yeah. He, he's not necessarily ideologically motivated. He's motivated by the notion that there are benefits to both sides. And so the quote that I have on that is that he says, quote, capitalism fails to realize life is social. Marxism fails to realize life is individual. Truth is found neither in the rugged individualism of capitalism nor the impersonal collectivism of communism. The kingdom of God, he says, is found in a synthesis that combines the truths of these two opposites. The system for him had to be arranged in such a way that it honored the dignity of the human being. 
the inerrant dignity of the human being. As a personalist, human personality was, it was first and foremost for him. So if you had a capitalist system that did not honor humanity in the full, and, and realize and allow humanity to actualize the fullness of its potential, he'd have a problem with that. If you had a socialist structure, a communist structure, so on and so forth, that did not allow for humanity to realize its potential, he had a problem with it. King's uh, revolutionary spirit comes from his, his adamance that human dignity remain at the forefront of social structures of all kinds. I think one of the reasons that, that he radicalized, that there's such a radical shift in terms of his philosophy and his approach to things is that really the events that he encounters and that re the challenges that he has to deal with really illustrate to him the importance of taking that shift. So this is, this is for him, this is, this is, this is event-based, evidence-based, exactly. right? And, and, and you know what? When you talk about evidence-based, you know what that reminds me of? That reminds me of uh, the quote that you pulled out regarding uh, his later reaction in 1967 to the bombings in 1963. Yeah, so that's, that's, that's a, a tough quote. That's a, that's a really tough quote from King because this is, this is a man who was an eternal optimist about human nature, who really believed in the, the spiritual vitality of human beings. And um, he, said, he says this. He's addressing uh, his Ebenezer congregation on Christmas Eve of 1967. He says, I must confess to you today that not long after talking about that dream, I started seeing it turn into a nightmare. I remember the first time I saw that dream turning into a nightmare, just a few weeks after I had talked about it. It was when four beautiful, unoffending, innocent Negro girls were murdered in a church in Birmingham, Alabama. In terms of events pushing him to speak out. Uh, do you want to talk about Watts in 1965, another example yeah. of, a, of an event that really changed right. the way... And I mean, I mean this is, this, you know, this is, you have to remember that at this particular point in time, it's basically eight months after he gets back from receiving a Nobel Peace Prize and from seeing what Scandinavian society looked like and what potentially could be derived of interest or of importance or of utility to American society, right? But in... August of 1965, the Watts riots explode in L.A. And this has a profound, profound effect on MLK and the way that he views the struggles his community is facing and what needs to be done about them. At this point in time, he says, basically, to, this is, we're, we're going to quote from, from Harding because he, he really puts a, a very nice, fine point on the way that uh, MLK responded to the Watts riots. So according to Harding, in Harding's words, MLK had seen the sea thing, felt it, heard it, predicted its rising explosive force. When he walked through Watts and saw the faces of the young men, he knew them, recognized they were his children, understood the desperation that led them to stand amidst the charred remains of their community and say, we won because we made the whole world pay attention to us. So, so from Watts, uh, after, after MLK reflects on Watts, he realizes that at this particular point in time, he, so he says, he says this, he, he writes about this in the fall after the summer of 65, so after the, 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 the Watts riots in L.A. He says, In my travels in the North, I was increasingly becoming disillusioned with the power structures there. I encountered the tragic and stubborn fact that in virtually no major city was there a mayor possessing statesmanship, understanding, or even strong compassion on the civil rights question. All my experience indicated that hope of voluntary understanding was chimerical. There was blindness, obtuseness, and rigidity that would only be altered by a dynamic movement. And that's the point at which he says, we got to take the freedom, we got to take the freedom, the freedom movement to the north. And he predicted at that point that a sharpened conflict would unfold. Could you speak a little bit about, um, like back in his day, uh, Mayor Daley's Democratic Party was notorious. Can you talk about some of the, the, the power structures that made it so difficult for, for, for MLK to get his message through the North? Well, one of the things that uh, Richard J. Daley was very famous for was the relationships that he built with black clergy on the south side of Chicago. He had friendships with several black clergy persons who were the prominent black clergy persons in Chicago. Uh, the Reverend Clarence H. Cobbs is a name that you'll come across. 
Reverend Cobbs probably had the biggest black church in Chicago at that time, the First Church of Deliverance at 43rd and Wabash, which is in the heart of Bronzeville. Reverend Cobbs was a man who was very interested in black liberation, but who had become a part of the daily machine. Uh, Reverend Cobbs is, is most famous for perhaps his most well-known, uh, one of the most well-known gospel songs of our time, How I Got Over. Mahalia Jackson sang it at the March on Washington. So he was very, very interested in black liberation for, 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 for years, just for decades, from the 20s on down through the 70s. But when Martin King came to Chicago and he was looking for prominent churches to speak from, the Reverend Clarence H. Cobbs refused to allow him to preach at the First Church of Deliverance and also called several of his friends at major pulpits and said, do not allow Dr. King to preach from your pulpits if you are going to remain in the pocket of Richard J. In the good graces, I'd say, pocket of Richard J. Daly. The loss that he incurs in Chicago is really a big deal. Oh yeah, it's a big, uh, absolutely. It's really absolutely. a big deal. So, so he think, moves, he moves to he moves to Chicago basically, January in, in January of '66. Yeah. And the reason they go, and the reason he goes, is that he's coordinated, he's organized ahead of time. They've planned, they, they've planned this with other freedom movement organizations, civil rights or, or organizations in Chicago. They want to attack the racist policies of public housing in Chicago, which is a huge issue for the community and. Julian can really explain much better than we can what, 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 that, what that looked like in terms of how his experience went in Chicago. So the movement, which was based on the, drama, on the dramatizing of agitation, it couldn't happen in Chicago because Mayor Daley made concessions. He was, a, he, was a, he was a typical Democratic liberal at that time who said, yeah, we'll make it. So King moves into this West Side apartment. Uh, that and he picks it strategically because really the issue in the north is housing. So he uh, goes to this get this this what he calls a ghetto apartment on the west side, and it has all these code violations. He's paying incredible rent to live here. So what uh, Mayor Daly finds out that he's living at this apartment, and he sends his his folks from the Department of Streets and Sanitation over there to clean up the apartment and issues the code violations for the, for the landlord. So once King moves in, there's no dramatizing of the movement anymore. Because you've got a clean apartment now, King. What are you talking about? <laughs> he goes and he meets with Mayor Daley downtown at uh, LaSalle Street, which is where City Hall is located. And they sit around a big table. And Mayor Daley says, I, you know, you're they have a press conference. And Mayor Daley presents himself as completely agreeable with what uh, King asked for. And it makes the movement so difficult there because you do not have in Chicago uh, people being blown away by fire hoses and dogs. And Mayor Daley is much too smart to allow himself to be caught with fire hoses and dogs. Uh, Richard J. Daley, uh, obviously according to what we just heard, uh, really had the strategy to defeat MLK in Chicago. But if we're keeping tally here, uh, we have Watts, we have the loss in Chicago, we have uh, his reflections uh, on 1963 and the bombing. Uh, now we're really moving into different waters. He's had his successes at this point. Yeah. He's, uh, you know, he's we've we've passed the Civil Rights Act already in 1964. Yeah, he's a, no, he's a Nobel Peace Prize winner at this point. He wins the Nobel Peace Prize in 1964. 1965 Voting Rights Act. He's had his victory and victories, and now he's incurring some losses. So let's move into 1967. Well, not only is he incurring losses at this point in time. I think at this, this is the this is the point at which he realizes he really comes to comes to grips with the reality that the earlier part of the movement, in fact, however difficult it was, was the easier part of the movement he had a vision for. You know, and what that does is it forces the white power structure to take a stand and say like we're gonna we're gonna go after you and do you and and that creates this kind of image where it's like this guy is you know a well-dressed well-spoken well-educated man uh, who is now getting slammed up against the counter and handcuffed why because he was he was walking in public where he wasn't supposed to walk so in Chicago on the 10th of July they have um, MLK leads the the Sunday Freedom March where about 10,000 people march with him to 
city, Chicago City Hall, where he nails up a tract in the style of Martin Luther on the door with demands and certain conditions that he wants met regarding the treatment of blacks and the black community with regards to public housing, amongst many other things. Lots of grievances, right? So after that, uh, in August, he organizes a march through Marquette, the Marquette Park neighborhood of Chicago. And what you need to understand about Market Park is that it's a hyper-segregated community. It's all white. And it is also one of the neighborhoods in which the Nazi Party of America is popular. There were, there were a lot of uh, demonstrations on behalf of uh, uh, Norman Rockwell in the 70s in Market Park. So we're, we're talking about a pretty right, well, seriously right-wing community. And so MLK leads about 700 people through the neighborhood and and they have police protection at this stage. And he gets hit by a rock. They they they're faced with a mob that he says um, after in uh, after ending the march, he said this. He said, "I've never seen anything like it. I've been in many demonstrations all across the south, but I can say that I have never seen even in Mississippi and Alabama." mobs as hostile and as hate-filled as I've seen in Chicago. He later says that evening after the Marquette Park March that Chicago was the most segregated city that he had ever been to. Uh, it was just systematically segregated. I mean, in Chicago you had uh, redlining, uh, a yeah. system of redlining that was just incredible. Housing covenants. Uh, that were meant to keep black people out of specific areas of the city. You had an expressway built in the middle of Chicago that was meant to transport white Southsiders safely to downtown where they worked so that they would not have to drive through uh, Chicago's Bronzeville community, which was uh, the heart of the black community, hence the name Bronzeville. All right, so we've discussed King beginning to speak out on economic issues. Uh, you know, a lot of people start telling him that he's, he's out of his element. Uh, but there's another area that he speaks out and where he starts beginning to take what some might call a radical position in this later portion of his life. Uh, in 1965, uh, he, he starts speaking on this. So Vietnam. So Vietnam's a big deal. So, so when, when, he, when he initially addresses Vietnam, this is within the context of the month of March 1965, which is, which is a month during which the entire, the, the entire uh, situation regarding the Selma marches from Selma to Montgomery were occurring, right? So that in and of itself was a period of intense news cycle attention to King and the movement, the civil rights movement. And he, he's actually asked a question about what he thinks about Vietnam. And in that context, King, King answers that millions of dollars can't be spent every day to hold troops in South Vietnam and our country cannot protect the rights of Negroes in Selma. It's the first time he addresses it in any way. It's kind of an oblique criticism. He's not making a direct attack on the idea of a war in Vietnam. And it's important to highlight that at this time, the people don't want him, people that are aligned with him don't want him speaking about the war because they think that's going to divert attention. And they think that that is going to put him in political opposition to the biggest ally that they have at this point in the federal government, which is LBJ. On the other, uh, on the other hand, again, it's important to remember that when he makes these initial declarations in '65, the war in Vietnam is not unpopular at this point. Quite the opposite, across the United States, there there's a majority of people who agree with the premise of the war in Vietnam, ma mainly containing communism in Southeast Asia. He expresses clearly a disagreement with the way the war is being prosecuted and the way the U.S. is approaching Southeast Asia and in particular Vietnam here. So he first talked about it in March 65 where he makes the comment about the millions of dollars spent in Vietnam when, it's, when, when they could be protecting the rights of Negroes in Selma. Then he also makes another comment uh, later on that summer, on the 29th of August 1965, he, he tells reporters on Face of the, Face the Nation that as, as a minister he had a prophetic function and as one greatly concerned about the need for peace in our world and the survival of mankind, I must continue to take a stand on this issue with regards to his opposition to Vietnam and why he insisted on it. Then there's a period, a period of time where he's faced with an unbelievable amount of political pressure from all sides, from the black side, from the white side, from the liberal side, the conservative side. Everybody, everybody is pressuring MLK to back down. 
to the point that LBJ actually had the American UN, UN ambassador take King aside and, and basically explain to him that he should, he should really stay out of, of, the, of the issue entirely. And so I have a, I have a great passage uh, from, from Vincent, Vincent Harding that, that kind of explains the dynamics behind the pressure that he was receiving. So Harding says this, so United Nations Ambassador Arthur Goldberg was assigned to assure King that all was well, that peace was in the air, and Martin later said he was stunned by the nature and amount of the pressure that mounted against those first public statements he made on the way. They told me I wasn't an expert in foreign affairs, and they were all experts, he said. They told him I knew only civil rights and I should stick to that. King backed down temporarily, but the die had been cast. The Negro hero had been told to stay in his place, colored place, to leave foreign affairs to white folks, to squelch any naive thoughts that nonviolence in Birmingham might be in any way re related to nonviolence in Vietnam. And then he goes on to say this. I think this is really, really demonstrative passage about King's appeal and, and King's value to, 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 to American history and to American culture. He said, King could not be tied down anywhere. That was part of his strange appeal and great danger. Increasingly, he came to see himself as advocate for the poor and the oppressed wherever they were. They became like fire in his bones. So we have this period, 1965, uh, he's, he speaks about the war obliquely. Mm -hmm. 1966, we don't want to say he's silenced, but he becomes quieter. Right, he right. doesn't. He's, he's not engaging with it directly. He's not engaging because, as, as, as we saw in the quote, the white people basically said he was out of his element, right? <laughs> right. He was. He received a lot of political pressure from 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 the liberal establishment that supported the civil rights movement. Yeah, the people right? so that he were couldn't his alienate. He so he was in a really difficult spot because at the same time he wanted to stay remain faithful to his principles as a minister, but politically he couldn't really afford to alienate so much institutional support that was backing his movement and really providing a lot of legal impetus behind it in terms of providing the attention and the consideration and, and all of the stuff that really was necessary to him progressing at that particular point in time. So that's 1965 and 1966. Then we get to February 1967 and MLK writes, in February 1967, the slender cord which held me threatened to break. February 25th, 1967, he gives a speech in California uh, that he criticizes the war directly. He says, quote, we must combine the fervor of the civil rights movement with the peace movement. And he calls this speech the casualties of the war in Vietnam. So this is the first speech that is in its entirety dedicated to addressing Vietnam. Yeah. He, reiter he reiterates this position in March in Chicago, and then April 4th, 1967, at Riverside Church, King gives a speech that is called the Beyond, Beyond Vietnam speech. Uh, Matthias, do you want to introduce the listeners to that? Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a lot to unpack here. So basically what he's doing here um, is he, he's, he's elaborating and articulating on what the, the political implications of what his religious beliefs are as a, as a minister, right? And so he says, my, minister, my ministry is in obedience to the one who loved his enemies so fully that he died for them. What then can I say to the Viet Cong or to Castro or to Mao as a faithful minister of this one? Can I threaten them with death or must I not share with them my life? By, by addressing his fellow Christians from the pulpit of America, as Reverend Cook called it. And he says that the privilege and burden of all of us who deem ourselves bound by allegiances and loyalties which are broader and deeper than nationalism and which go beyond our nation's self-defined goals and positions. We are called to speak for the weak, for the voiceless, for victims of our nations, and for those it calls enemy. For no document from human hands can make these humans any less our brother. So his goal is essentially to it's not just to help the people of Montgomery. It's not just to help the people of the South. It's not just to help the people of the United States. It's not even a political move, what he's doing. It's actually a spiritual, psychological, historical movement. And it's global. He sees it as integrated worldwide. He really wants to eradicate uh, notions of racism from the human heart. You know what I mean? That's an insane goal. Yeah. I mean, that's really, the, and, and that's something that he ever he wants to rehabilitate our souls in a sense. I think that's exactly right. So the question is, what would have success have looked like to someone like him? Yeah. Uh, it's hard to say. 
a lot of these ideas that we're talking about earlier we were discussing the uh, economic radicalism that he started uh, speaking out about here we're talking about his anti-war radicalism these fuse in the Vietnam speech and there's a quote here where he addresses how uh, the Vietnam War is affecting the poor. He says, quote, I knew that America would never invest the necessary funds or energies in the rehabilitation of the poor so long as adventures like Vietnam continue to draw men and skills and money like some demonic, destructive suction tube. So I was increasingly compelled to see the war as an enemy of the poor and to attack it as such. The war is an enemy of the poor, is what he's saying. It's diverting resources away from, from dealing squarely with the issue of poverty in his eyes. Exactly, and he addresses the fact that the war is, uh, is killing poor people in much higher proportion than it is uh, any other segment of society, and he's also addressing the fact that the war is killing black people more than it's killing anyone else in society. You know, we're talking about his economic radicalism, his yeah. military radicalism, all of this stuff. Let's, you remember yesterday during the passage where we said, look, I mean, he was really uncomfortable with this label of revolutionary. Yeah. Because for him, this wasn't radical at all. Yeah. This, so, this is not a radical, this is not, not, this is in no way, shape, or what he's talking about is in no way, shape, or form radical. For him, these, the, the things that he's articulating flow simply from, from his faith. Beyond Vietnam, in terms of economics, is, so he's recognizing the fact that this is affecting the poor disproportionately. Um, and and he, he's starting to talk about the radical restructuring of American society. He talks about the edifice of American society. Here is what he, he says. He brings together economics and God and the reasons he's giving this speech. You, you mentioned that he's, he's giving this from the point of view of a preacher who can no longer uh, hold it in, in good conscience to not speak about the war. He says, quote, The true, true compassion is more than flinging a coin to a beggar. It comes to see that an edifice which produces beggars needs restructuring. A true revolution of values will look uneasily on the glaring contrast of poverty and wealth. That is what he says regarding the Vietnam War, and and then he begins to go on in this spiritual vein. Matthias, do you wanna do you wanna talk about that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is a, this is a really powerful, powerful statement from 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 Martin Luther King Jr. And you understand also why why when he says something like this, he's immediately exposing himself to a wealth of criticism from essentially the entirety of American society because this goes to the heart of what the issue is in his mind. He says a nation that, that continues to spend year after year to spend more money on military defense than on programs of social uplift is approaching spiritual death. Right? So, so he, he, he sees this, he, he, sees, he looks at, at the Vietnam War through the paradigm of a spiritual man who's understanding the direction that his country is going in at that particular point in time. Uh, he actually says uh, it's his responsibility as a Nobel Peace Prize winner uh, to talk about the war. He says, quote, I cannot forget that the Nobel Peace Prize was also a commission to work harder than I had ever worked before for the Brotherhood of Man. This calling takes me beyond national allegiances. Uh, so we start seeing all these things in, in this speech. Uh, this speech has major fallout, it, it, needless to oh, say, absolutely. because this is where absolutely. he steps out on a limb, he goes further than he's ever gone before, and what ends up happening is uh, he gives this speech on April 4th. 4th yeah. April 12th, the NAACP said, uh, passes a resolution that says, quote, to attempt to merge the civil rights movement with the peace movement is, in our judgment, a serious tactical mistake. Uh, furthermore, it's important to note that at this time, uh, only 25% of black Americans favored King's anti-war stance. We have the, the NAACP resolution, we have the statistic about uh, the fact that, that uh, black Americans did not agree with this, um, and on top of that, almost every uh, editorial board in the country came out saying that King was a disservice Service. to his cause because of this speech. And to his people. And to right? his people. I mean, they're, 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 they're yeah. coming out and essentially they're, they're, they're condemning him and indicting him. After his, his Riverside Address, he gave a similar sermon at his Ebenezer congregation. And he talked a little bit about the response that he was getting from the press. And it's important to note this because as a speaker and as a preacher, Martin Luther King Jr. never really expressed anger. Right? He was extremely aspirational, always extremely optimistic, a very uplifting tone he took. 
And and here he says, and 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 the author may, and and Vincent Harding makes note of this. He says this with traces of anger in his voice, which is significant. He says, "There is something strangely inconsistent about a nation and a press that will praise you when you say be nonviolent toward Bull Connor and Jim Jim Clark in Alabama, but will curse and damn you when you say be nonviolent toward little brown Vietnamese children." There's something wrong with that press. That is a profound statement. Yeah, yeah. I mean, clearly, clearly at this point. You know, he's, I, I think, you know, when he makes a statement like that, it's very clear in retrospect that for him, you know, the, the position he took, the reaction he got to that position really confirmed what he thought was wrong with American society at that particular point in time. So you have to understand that through the summer of 1967, though. Exactly. I mean, what happened in, in, in the summer of 67, essentially, almost 150 cities across the United States, urban centers, erupted in either protest or riot, with the most significant one being the Detroit riots at that particular point in time. So Detroit riots, to quote Vincent, Hart, uh, Vincent Harding here, in, in the Motor City, at that point in time, the symbol of the, the nation's great technological prowess, the message of its great moral failures was broadcast to the world as 5,000 paratroopers were called in, some already veterans of the other battleground in Southeast Asia. So Lyndon B. Johnson is sending in the paratroopers, basically, guys who had spent some time in Vietnam, and he's sending them into Detroit to quell the unrest, right? And at that point in time, I think LBJ makes a serious political mistake in drawing the ire of Martin Luther King Jr. in coming out and angrily denouncing and, in, and indicting across the board the, the, the rioters in Detroit. And at this point, this is when the gloves come off for MLK. He's had enough. He's no longer going to put up with any of this, the, the, the political maneuvering, with any of the, 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 the censorship. He's, he's going to let loose here. And let me ask you this question. Do you think that this is him rectifying the mistake that he thought he made in 1964? Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, because in this situation, it's so, the the, the contrast is so stark. Lyndon B. Johnson at this point is so clearly on the wrong. Just to clarify for our listeners, when we talk about the mistake that he made in 1964, we're talking about uh, in regard to the uh, the, Demo- the Democratic, Democratic National, National Convention. Convention, where basically he he acquiesced to the liberal establishment and got uh, a, a group of militant, uh, multiracial, uh, multiracial uh, protesters at the convention to basically shut up and let the the all white delegation of Mississippi proceed as such. So we come back to uh, 1967. Um, he's refusing to shut up, and, uh, and at the, and at this point he comes at the gloves come off. So he sends these telegrams. To directly to the White House. So he's saying this directly to Lyndon B. Johnson. He says, How can the administration, with quivering anger, denounce the violence of ghetto Negroes when it has given an example of violence in Asia that shocks the world? Only those who are fighting for peace have the moral authority to lecture on nonviolence. So at this point, he, he, he's really issuing a strong moral rebuke to the federal government's response and to Lyndon B. Johnson's response to what was happening in the summer of 67. And then so, so at, that, at that point in time, the, the final one for me, and probably for me, the, 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 the most trenchant remark he makes is, is after Lyndon B. Johnson comes out an, announcing the Kerner Commission to investigate potential solutions to the problems that were plaguing the inner cities of all of these communities and all of these urban centers and calls for a day of national prayer. And that's too much for King. He says, as a minister, I take prayer too seriously to use it as an excuse for avoiding work and responsibility. When a government commands more wealth and power than has ever been known in the history of the world and offers no more than this, it is worse than blind. It is provocative. So 1967, we have all of this in Detroit. We have King, as you say, taking the gloves off. Now let's move to the winter of uh, 1967, moving into 1968, which unbeknownst to King and his followers, turn out to be the last months of his life. Historians agree on the fact that this period of his life, basically the end of 67, was one of the hardest periods of his career as a leader, as a minister, and also just generally speaking as a public figure. Because now he's come out, he's come out seriously against the administration of Lyndon B. Johnson, drawing the ire. At this point, the federal government oh, yeah. hates him. They well, detest him. Uh, that, and that, that, I think that's clear, actually, from, from the reaction to the Riverside Address. He actually yeah. says, uh, 
in response to that N NAACP re resolution we mentioned where they uh, call it a serious tactical failure, he says, I was saddened that the board of directors of the NAACP, a fellow civil rights organization, would join in the perpetuation uh, of this um, myth about my views. And the myth that he's referring to is the notion that he wants to organizationally join uh, the civil rights movement with the peace movement, uh, which is not what he's talking about. If you recall, the, the first speech that he gave about Vietnam, uh, or the first uh, outspoken speech that he gave entirely dedicated to, the, to Vietnam in February 25th of 67, he says he wants to combine the fervor the fervor. the fervor of the civil rights movement. Not the movement. organizations, the fervor. He wants the same exactly. kind of passion he's seeing in the civil rights movement to manifest itself in the peace movement as well, but the anti-war movement. But this hard part of King's life uh, is really evident in the in the point that he, he actually uh, has a quote, uh, and I, I don't think I can find the direct quote here, but, but what he essentially says is, uh, this was a rough period in my life. This was a period when he says, quote, I couldn't open a newspaper. Uh, December 4th at an SELC retreat, he announces the Poor People's Campaign. Uh, what this was, was uh, in the words of historian James A. Kaleko, uh, the Poor People's Campaign called for initial, an initial cotter of 3,000 poor blacks, whites, Puerto Ricans, Mexican-Americans, and Indians trained in nonviolence to march on Washington from 10 cities and five rural commun communities throughout the nation. Uh, and this was scheduled to begin on April 22nd That's of right. 1968, That's right. and then it was going to uh, expand. The immediate purpose, as the historian writes, uh, the immediate purpose of the campaign was to prod Congress to enact King's proposed $12 billion Bill of Rights for the Disadvantaged, guaranteeing an end to housing discrimination, a job for those who were able to work, and income for those who were disabled. Now. On that last point, uh, what what King is referring to is essentially what economists today call a universal call a universal basic income, or essentially money that's transferred from the government directly to poor people. Uh, it's important to note, though, that King faced dramatic opposition to the Poor People's Campaign. Uh, he he faced opposition. Uh, not just, once again, not just from the ordinary suspects, but from people within his own movement. Uh, so this movement, uh, this 1968 March on Washington, was supposed to be, quote, powerful enough, dramatic enough, morally appealing enough so that people of goodwill, the churches, labor, liberals, intellectuals, students, poor people themselves begin to put pressure on congressmen to point that they can no longer elude our demands. And finally what I'd note is that from the inside, the, the, the gentleman who was one of the main organizers of the 1963 March on Washington, Bayard Rustin, he actually said of this move that given the, quote, given the mood in Congress, given the increasing backlash across the nation, given the fact that this is an election year, and that given the high visibility of a protest movement in the nation's capital, I feel that in this atmosphere, any effort to disrupt transportation, government buildings, etc., can only lead to further backlash, backlash and repression. So what we're seeing is one of the main organizers of the 1963 March on Washington uh, basically saying that this isn't a good idea. But, nonetheless, King moved forward. And King said this, nonviolent protest must now mature to a new level to correspond to heightened black impatience and stiffened white resistance. This higher level is mass civil disobedience. There must be more than a statement to the larger society. There must be a force that interrupts its functioning at some key point. That interruption must not, however, be clandestine or surreptitious. It must be open and above all conducted by large masses without violence. If the jails are filled to thwart it, its meaning will become even clearer. I mean, here he's straight up calling for essentially a, ma a general mass strike. Oh, so basically, anybody anybody who who supports him is yeah. is, is expected to, to to essentially stop doing anything of constructive value to he, society. He's talking about people trained in nonviolence to be sitting in government buildings, right, and, and disrupting uh, disrupting the normal flow of things in Washington D.C. So, King here is getting progressively more disruptive. Uh, and progressively more radical. And what we need to note is that going into this, this was set to happen in April. Yeah. Now we're talking about essentially what leads to uh, what leads to his assassination. In March, he decides to go to Memphis. And what Memphis is is essentially a training ground. It is a stop along the way Absolutely. from. Uh, to uh, stop along the way to Washington, D.C., to the Poor People's Campaign. He was advised not to go to Memphis because many people thought it was a distraction from the larger efforts. 
Andy Young was one of them who thought it was a distraction from the larger efforts. There just wasn't the infrastructure in Memphis. They were coming off of a major, a major loss in Chicago. He said, we don't need another loss. You, you, your, our funding has dropped about 60% by some estimations after you came out against Vietnam. It's just not, it's a tactical mistake to go to, go to Memphis. It, actually, he said more so it was a distraction to go to Memphis. Uh, it was a distraction to deal with garbage workers. Of course, for King, that was exactly where he wanted to be with the garbage workers. And uh, he goes there. Many people don't know why he went there, but he went there because garbage workers, sanitation workers in Memphis, Tennessee, as in many states, uh, black, black garbage workers were not treated with the same respect that white garbage workers were treated with. It provided an, an opportunity for him to dramatize the efforts. Reverend Samuel Billy Kyles called uh, Dr. King and really made an argument for um, him coming there. Reverend Kyles, interestingly enough, is from Chicago. And so he called Dr. King and asked him to come after two garbage workers who were denied access to the, to the uh, indoor facilities to eat their lunch were killed uh, because they couldn't eat their lunch inside. It was a rainy day, so they ate their lunch in the back of the truck. Somehow, the truck uh, dislodged, and they were killed in with through the crushing with the crushing mechanism that was in the back of the truck. And so that provided an instant. There's dramatization, right? Uh, dramatization. Excuse me. There's dramatization right there. So we have something to build a movement around. Uh, there was a garbage worker strike, and King went to help dramatize that strike. So was this, would you call it, I don't want to, was this uh, maybe a, a dress rehearsal for the way they would dramatize the new, Absolutely. The new March on Washington? Because that's exactly, you said it exactly right. They were going back to Washington. Yeah. Memphis was just a step on the way to Washington. He moves in uh, uh, to Memphis to be a part of this movement. Uh, unfortunately, on March 28th, during a demonstration, violence breaks out, uh, essentially calling into question the capacity of King to uh, maintain nonviolence, uh, not just in, in all, uh, not just in Washington in the coming month, but in all future demonstrations. Uh, people are starting to question his ability to uh, maintain the tactics that have been so successful to this point. Uh, so March 28th. Uh, it becomes violent. They decide to reschedule a peaceful, uh, a peaceful protest uh, within the coming week. Uh, on April third, he gives an incredibly powerful address, uh, an address uh, called uh, "I've been to the mountaintop." The famous uh, address everybody knows. I may not get there with you. I may not get there with you, he says. On the night before his assassination, he says, "I've been to the mountaintop." I've seen to the other side, and he says, I may not get there with you, but I know that we will get there. That is a paraphrase, of course. And, and honestly, it, it kind of speaks to, to his mentality at this point in time. I mean, you know, it's, it, it's, it's kind of bone-chilling to realize that, you know, this is a public address, and the guy is basically predicting his assassination. He says, I'm going to die because of this, because of the positions that I'm taking. I may not get there with you for a preacher to say that at and that particular point in time after what happened in Memphis six days earlier. I mean, very clearly he was aware of the extreme tension within which he was operating at that point in time. April 3rd, he gives uh, the powerful address, I've been to the mountaintop. Uh, he says, I may not get there with you. And, of course, April 4th uh, at the Lorraine Motel, uh, his life is ended by an assassin. I was just thinking, you know, you're, you're a preacher. Mm -hmm. And... You know, I hear you talk talk at length about the history of various churches, various parishes, various pulpits, mm -hmm. um, different preachers, different spiritual figures mm -hmm. in the United States that had a tremendous impact on Dr. King and and thereby on American society. Right. And you know, we're hearing about uh, Niebuhr and Tillich and Rauschenbusch, mm -hmm. and it begs the question for me, for our generation, that is. In some ways, you could argue almost post-religious, and that it barely receives any traditional theological education anymore. It's no longer part of the curriculum. Right. Are we equipped as a society today 
to hear the message, to understand the message, to see where it comes from, and to be able to appreciate where Dr. King was coming from at that particular point in time if we don't have that Christian doctrine that he's pulling from? That's an incredible question, and I'll try to answer that as briefly as possible, because uh, that's a thesis, in a mm -hmm. sense. Uh, I want to say I do think that there is uh, a major problem with any individual, and this is a quote in a sense from Reinhold Niebuhr, with any individual who has simple answers to complex questions. And I think if we take religion off of the table, we are missing one of the main motivating factors behind human resilience. When you're talking about a civil rights movement, you have to talk about religious questions. Uh, do I think that people need be Christians to be revolutionaries? No. Do I think that people can be atheists and be revolutionaries? I absolutely do. But I think that there must be some willingness to deal with the deep questions of life, to deal with the deep questions of human existence. And when we take that off of the table by saying we won't have any talk about religion, uh, there can be no rational religion. You really fly in the face of, of a Dr. King because this is an individual who spent his life trying to make religion to have some sort of practical basis. And you, there is no way that you, can, that you can have conversations with marginalized communities by and large because communities of faith and, and spaces of faith have been the only thing in marginalized communities that we had control over. So you can't ask a black person, what does it mean to be free without at some point coming across the black church tradition? So when we take that question off the table, we really do run the danger of uh, having simple answers to complex questions. Uh. I would thank you so much for being here. Oh, yeah, thank yeah. you. Honestly, yeah, thank you so much. We, can, we cannot express our gratitude. Yeah. Oh, my pleasure. My Rabbi Abraham Heschel was uh, a supporter from, from the early days of the Civil Rights Movement, of Martin Luther King, and, and MLK and, and, and Rabbi Heschel became very close friends as the years went on and as they, they progressed through the movement together. And, and he, said, he, he said this 10 days before MLK was assassinated. And he said this, Martin Luther King Jr. is a voice, a vision, and a way. I call upon every Jew to hearken to his voice, to share his vision, to follow in his way. The whole future of America will depend on the impact and influence of Dr. King. We hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. We'd like to extend a very special thank you to Reverend Julian Cook and Mr. Ryan Hendrickson for their expertise on Martin Luther King. We'd also like to say thank you to uh, the entire Common Thread team. Uh, there are six of us. Uh, we'd like to say thank you to, to Celeste Hamra for re uh, revitalizing this program. Uh, this has been a long dormant program in the Howard Thurman Center, and we're happy to be uh, reviving it and retooling it. We'd also like to say thank you uh, to uh, everyone at the Howard Thurman Center, including Miss Kennedy and Pedro Falci for being of aid to us in this process and helping us go through this learning experience.